0: This is Radio Shock with Alex Smith.
1: You want it darker.
2: Stay tuned for Julian Cribb in our second half hour. What if I told you alien matter has invaded everything, everywhere? That is not science fiction or a conspiracy theory. Matt Simon is a science journalist with Wired magazine. He's published several books and his latest is A Poison Like No Other, How Microplastics Corrupted Our Planet and Our Bodies. From San Jose, California, Matt Simon, welcome to Radio Ecoshock.
0: And thank you for having me.
2: What drove you to go beyond a Wired article to develop the world of microplastics into a book?
0: Well, I guess if it was during the pandemic, um, I thought a great idea would be uh, to make myself feel even worse about the state of the world and and dive deeper into microplastic pollution um, while I had a lot of free time on my hands. As you mentioned, I have been writing about this for Wired for a number of years here and there as these studies were kind of trickling out. But I noticed that nobody had really done a cohesive uh, really treatment of the state of the science of microplastic pollution, which has really just been taking off over the past couple of years. Um, And I really like the way that you put it here as this alien
2: matter. It is this truly bizarre and really daunting kind of pollution that scientists are really just beginning to come to terms with. So, getting back to basics, what is plastic, really?
0: Plastic is, simply put, uh, really just these long chains of carbon. Carbon uh, tends to form really strong bonds with itself, and what petrochemical companies can do is convert fossil fuels um, into various kinds of chemicals that are chained together into this kind of plastic. There's lots of different kinds, um, That just look around uh, you—bottles and bags. uh, Your clothing is now made largely of plastic, like polyester or nylon. The issue becomes that uh, you know plastic is this very strong material, but it does break down over time. And when you see a bag or a bottle floating around in the environment, um, that's really just pre-microplastic that is going to break down eventually into these tiny, tiny bits. Scientists define them as. smaller than five millimeters, which is about the width of a pencil eraser, Um, those tiny particles then get into absolutely every corner of the environment and into essentially every living thing on this planet.
2: And it gets even smaller and never really goes away. What is a nanoplastic?
0: Yeah, if it wasn't scary enough, a nanoplastic, as scientists define it, is something smaller than a millionth of a meter. Uh, This is small enough to get into individual cells. So the thinking now in the scientific community is, all right, well, these things keep fragmenting over time into smaller and smaller bits. When do they stop, right? So do they eventually break down into their component chemicals? And I think the predominant thinking right now is that they actually reach a kind of sweet spot on this nanoscale where they get so small that they are not, subjected to the forces of abrasion anymore, and they kind of float around perpetually as these teeny tiny little specks that, again, can get into individual cells, and there's just astronomical amounts of these particles, these nanoparticles, much more so than microplastic particles, which are a little bit bigger in the environment, um, especially in the atmosphere where they're just really swirling around in huge quantities above our heads. Just
2: as a frame of reference, Matt, is it likely both you and I have plastic in our brains as we speak?
0: It's an interesting question. It's actually the one bit of science that we're missing on, on human health. So we have, I say we scientists have found microplastics in all kinds of human organs. So in the placenta, in gut tissue, in lungs, in our blood. And it's an, almost a certainty that it is in our brains. Scientists have not yet done a study to find it in human brains. It's very difficult to separate these particles from human tissues, but I can almost guarantee you that they're in our brains, and these nanoparticles are small enough to pass the blood-brain barrier, which is kind of this force field that protects our our brains from intruders. Um, They're so small that they're getting into individual cells and very likely deep into our brain, and scientists have Essentially, no idea what that could mean for for brain health.
2: Wait a minute. We've been making plastics for over a hundred years, and we still don't really know how it affects human health.
0: This is the scary thing about plastics: is that we began producing them in tremendous quantities starting in the nineteen forties, kind of after World War II. The, the production really ramped up, and it has been increasing since then. Exponentially, and scientists can go around in the environment and look into like ocean sediments and things like that, where they can look back in time over the decades in the layers and show that as the production of plastic increases exponentially, so does the pollution of microplastic in the environment. Uh, it's out of control at this point, and we have been exposed to plastics in. Really, this much more intimate way than I think the plastics industry wanted us to believe. So, you know, we're, we're surrounding ourselves with carpets that's made out of plastic and sheets and, and things like that. Really, scientists didn't have as great an idea of the extent of microplastic pollution until recently. And only in the past couple of years have we gotten really good studies on indoor air in particular is absolutely tainted with microplastics. One calculation says that we are perhaps inhaling around 7,000 particles a day, and we don't know what that means for human health, other than we know that particles of any kind in the lungs are terrible. We know that the component chemicals of plastics are extremely toxic, even in really low doses. Uh, These are known as endocrine-disrupting chemicals, or EDCs, and the problem might be for children whose bodies are developing, yet they're crawling around on the floor of our homes where a lot of these microplastic particles are accumulating. So that is the, the huge concern here, is that some of these chemicals are extraordinarily toxic to human health, but we just don't have good studies yet on how much microplastic is too much plastic to have in the body.
2: Germany, I think, it was in the late 1990s, began to ban PVC flooring because they knew it was breaking up into toxic particles and they just didn't want people walking around on that stuff. But it seems like North America were just oblivious to it.
0: That is in large part because of the interest of the fossil fuel industry, which has captured our politicians and infiltrated universities as well. You actually get much more funding for microplastics research in Europe, um, where this isn't. As much of an issue, it's of course, an issue, but not nearly as much as in the United States, in particular. Um, in North America, we're way behind on this research, which is an extremely urgent thing to pump as much money into as we can, because if microplastics and nanoplastics are having these big impacts on on human health, which I'm I'm pretty sure that we're going to find at some point, but that might be five, ten years down the road, we need to start putting interventions. In place, I mean, I, I would argue that we should be doing that immediately in the absence of these kinds of, of good studies that are finally tying microplastics and nanoplastics to, to various human health concerns. Um, there's things that we can do in the human home, like vacuuming and that sort of thing, but at the end of the day, it is going to require a fundamental renegotiation of our relationship with plastic. It is not this benign material that the industry has always sold us on, uh, it is toxic in any number of ways, both to human health and thinking about every other organism in the environment that is exposed to this stuff constantly. So
2: how do particles of plastic get to the ends of the earth even?
0: That to me is the, the truly scary thing about microplastics is just how easily they move through various compartments in the environment. So plastics by their nature are, are quite light. That's one of their charms of the material. So when they break into microplastics, they very easily take to the air. And there has been a lot of good modeling in recent years by scientists who are showing that just like particles of dust, these things take to the atmosphere and travel thousands upon thousands of miles. And Arctic scientists were a bit shocked when they were sifting through snow samples and were finding tire particles of all things which is strange because they're on on arctic sea ice there are no vehicles driving around what they modeled was that this is in fact coming from europe so microplastics are in large part coming from synthetic rubber from our tires that break off and flush out to sea and wastewater and then eventually take the air and blow into the arctic and essentially every other Place in the environment. Scientists will find them absolutely everywhere in rainforests that are supposed to be pristine, in Antarctica, which is supposed to be pristine. The air is this big transport pathway for microplastics and nanoplastics. You can stand on the top of a remote mountain in the Alps and microplastics will be raining on your head in significant quantities. Uh, scientists will tell you who are working on, on microplastics that. No place on Earth is untouched.
2: Well, yes, you have a whole chapter about microplastics in the ocean, and it's a frightening story, and it's a scale too big to imagine, really. Could you give us a couple of examples from the science of plastics
0: at sea? I think the primary concern here is, in fact, the global one. So in the oceans, we have this carbon process where... Uh, the sea absorbs carbon dioxide, and these little plants called phytoplankton uh, absorb carbon dioxide and spit out oxygen. Those are eaten by zooplankton, which are these little tiny animals. When they poop, that poop falls to the seafloor, and sequestered in that is the carbon from the atmosphere. That is a, actually a huge sink of carbon, and it's actually been saving humanity from itself to a large degree when it comes to climate change. We don't want to mess with that process, yet microplastics are infiltrating that. So these zooplankton, when they're eating this phytoplankton, are also eating microplastics, and scientists have shown that that actually changes the density of their fecal pellets and slows them down as they are descending to the seafloor. That then allows other creatures in that water column to consume those fecal pellets, which keeps the carbon from walking away down into depth. That, I think, is the the primary concern among microplastic scientists, that we are messing with these fundamental carbon and climate processes when we're pumping all these microplastics into the ocean. And that is to say nothing of all the creatures that are directly consuming microplastics and suffering. So... There have been a lot of studies showing that even in concentrations of microplastics that we currently have in the environment, they're extremely toxic to, to certain organisms. But the big concern is that when they're eating these microplastics, they're actually filling up their stomachs with not food and that it's decreasing their appetite for actual food. And that could be changing the way that they're growing and just weakening them in general. That then has ripple effects of the food chain. So the larger organisms that are feeding on those organisms aren't getting as good of a meal because of the microplastics injecting themselves into the food chain. And uh, there are any number of of other processes that scientists are are investigating, and it's, it's just not looking particularly good because the oceans have become absolutely saturated with microplastics, and that is continuing, unabated, as microplastics are just flowing in exponential forms out into the natural world.
2: We think our consciousness controls the stomach and the digestive system, but it's partly the other way around. So now enter plastic, lots of it. Some estimates are we may eat a credit card weight of plastic every week. What happens in our gut?
0: Scientists have been finding tremendous quantities of microplastics in human Feces, we know that we are ingesting it in, in, in any number of forms. So, obviously, stuff that is packaged in plastic is, is highly contaminated with microplastics. We're drinking it in our drinking water, both uh, you know, that's coming from the tap and that's certainly in plastic bottles is, is highly contaminated with microplastics. What are those particles doing in our guts? It's a big question. So. I think the issue here is that, you know, I call microplastics a poison like no other because it is really this physical form of pollution. So, like, mercury is an element out in the environment as a pollutant, but a a microplastic is a physical piece of pollutant. So when it's moving through our gut, it gets trapped in, you know, the the walls of our, our intestines and could be causing problems there, but as these particles are moving through the environment, they're actually accumulating uh, a microbiome of their own. It's called the plastic And that could actually be transporting some of these strange microbes that don't belong in our guts uh, into our, our guts. And that could be changing the way that our microbiomes are, are shifting in our, our guts as we get older, that sort of thing. We just have very little idea because microplastic science is so... New And because there just hasn't been a tremendous amount of funding because the human health aspects. But, yeah, then once our, our gut microbiome has changed, how does that interface with our, our brains and any number of other processes in our bodies? Scientists just don't know other than to say that they can test for feces having a lot of microplastics coming out the other end of us, um, which is obvious because we're, we're ingesting so many of them, but the particles are also crossing through the gut barrier. Most likely, studies on rodents have shown this happening in real time, and because we're mammals as well, it's likely happening to us. And we just don't understand the implication, which is the urgency for pumping tremendous amounts of funding into this kind of research. Are
2: plants incorporating microplastics? What about the food we eat? Is that plasticized now? That's a, a, actually a,
0: a surprisingly tricky avenue of research. So, in the lab, you, you can grow plants in microplastic tainted soils, and show some studies show, show that yeah, you you do see some uptake of those particles into the roots and perhaps into the tissues of the plants. That's that's quite a, a tricky avenue of research, just because there are many different ways to grow crops. Uh, you can do it hydroponically or in proper soils. Um, There are, of course, many different kinds of crops that we eat. We do know, however, that the soils that we're growing our crops in are absolutely packed with microplastics. That is, in large part because when we do laundry uh, of our polyester clothes, those fibers wash to a wastewater treatment facility, and around 10% of the fibers are just flushed out to sea in the treated, treated wastewater but the remaining 90% is actually sequestered in this material called sludge, which is human waste that's then spread on fields as fertilizer. So we are spreading concentrated microplastics on our crops, uh, which is, of course, not only a concern for those plants, but also when those fields dry out, the winds come by and scour the dirt and pick up all those microplastics into the atmosphere. This is actually a, a large input of microplastics into the sky is just from the fields where we're growing our crops. And we have been getting studies showing that certain crops grown in highly contaminated soils of, of microplastics do suffer. I think the bigger concern here is actually all the organisms and microbes in the soil itself. So there have been other studies that have looked at the impacts on earthworms that suffer greatly when ingesting Microplastics, um, microbial communities change in soils contaminated with microplastics, and also the structure of the dirt changes. As you add more plastic, uh, it doesn't absorb water as well. That could be a huge concern going forward, especially during droughts. If a lot of that water is just evaporating away, that could have its own impacts on our crops as well. Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org.
2: This is Radio EcoShock. You're listening to science journalist Matt Simon. His new book is "A Poison Like No Other: How Microplastics Corrupted Our Planet and Our Bodies." Matt, how long will the plastic that humans release stay in the environment?
0: It's a tricky question. So you'll hear a lot of times that plastics will last a uh, hundred years or a thousand years in the environment, and it's hard to, to say for sure. So first of all, we have lots of different kinds of plastics. So PVC is a particularly tough one that might take longer to break down than, say, like a wisp of of single-use plastic for for packaging that might break apart quicker. So the other thing is that we're talking about all kinds of different conditions in the environment. So if you are a plastic bag 2,000 feet deep in the sea, you are subjected to fundamentally different forces than a plastic bag. Floating around the surface. So, one of the big things that breaks down plastic is UV bombardment. That breaks apart the bonds and releases a bunch of chemicals in the plastic into the sea, which doses any number of organisms in the vicinity. Um, but that UV actually helps break down that plastic into microplastics much quicker. So, it's hard to say, okay, for sure plastic lasts 100 years in the environment. Well, that's not necessarily true because any different kind of plastic has any different kind of, of period of breakdown. That's that's the tricky part here, is that we don't really know the extent of the toxicity of the plastics that we've already put out. Uh, a group of scientists are calling this the, the plastic toxicity debt, that so we've pumped all this plastic out there. We haven't actually seen the full toxicological effects, because the stuff is all still breaking down into these smaller particles. And that's given that we suddenly stop emitting this stuff into the environment. We're emitting more and more and more year after year. So we're building up this debt like a credit card debt, but it's toxicity of these particles going forward. And we are just trying to catch up as far as the science is concerned as to what that means ecologically. But the early studies are showing very, very terrible effects on ecosystems.
2: Matt, you mentioned the additives that come with plastic. I mean, plastic is not just plastic—the uh, the raw material that the oil companies produce. It's a lot of other things. Could you talk to us about one or two? What, what's in there?
0: The issue here is that we don't really know, right? So, plastics companies don't have an ingredient list on their plastics. They don't—they're not required to—and um, what. Scientists and chemists have to do then is actually reverse engineer these plastics, which is absurd. That the burden is on us as a scientific community and as consumers to to know what's in our plastic when really the industry should be telling us. So, you know, the the thinking is at least ten thousand different chemicals are used in plastics, uh, a good chunk of which are known to be toxic, and when we're thinking about okay, what are the effects on human health? Those EDCs that I mentioned are a big one. Uh, BPA, you've probably heard of, obviously, is is one of those that has been phased out, but often substituted with similar chemicals that are as toxic, if not more toxic, (laughs) for human health. And then we have to remind ourselves that, my God, every organism on this planet is now exposed to microplastics in some way. So one chemical that might be okay for like a snail to ingest might be entirely toxic for a specific kind of algae. Um, That's what we're up against.
2: The tsunami of plastic can even influence climate change. The links are complex. Could you introduce us to some of the plastic climate relationships that scientists are studying?
0: So First and foremost, Plastics are fossil fuels, right? So it takes a tremendous amount of energy to extract those fossil fuels. It takes more energy to process them into plastics. And a recent calculation suggests that given the just huge increase in the production of plastics in the coming decades, by 2050, the industry will be responsible for the emissions of 600 coal-fired power plants. So while, as a society. We are decarbonizing. We are moving away from coal plants. We've actually been making great progress in North America decommissioning those coal plants. We have this plastics industry really just emitting more and more and more. And over time, that is going to cut into these gains that we're making on climate change by decarbonizing elsewhere. So that's that's the first one is that um, plastics are just fossil fuels. They come with carbon emissions. The thing is that once those plastics get out into the environment, because they're carbon, they release that carbon as methane and as carbon dioxide. And there's some early calculations showing that as a particle breaks down in the environment, it releases exponentially more methane, which is an extremely potent greenhouse gas. Um, So I think, okay, well, we have just unfathomable amounts of microplastic floating around in the environment. All of it is off-gassing this carbon. How much of that is actually contributing to climate change? It's not a calculation that's been done yet, but I suspect that it's going to be a significant contributor because these are fossil fuels in a different form. We're not burning them, but we're turning fossil fuels into plastics and using them and expelling them into the environment. Uh, So the other, I think, really fascinating, and maybe fascinating is not the right word, a little bit scary uh, idea, is that because so much of it is in the atmosphere, how then is that changing atmospheric dynamics? So for one, these particles of plastic are often darkly colored. uh, That absorbs some of the sun's energy. Does that actually help heat the atmosphere? But also, are these little particles acting as nuclei for clouds so, clouds form as water droplets, glom onto dust particles, and things like that. Are microplastics doing the same and essentially brightening clouds? That would, of course, help bounce some of the sun's energy back into space, but that could also change weather patterns. And we are just coming to terms with the amount of this stuff that is in the atmosphere. We now have to figure out well, what are the consequences of that, given that every cubic inch of the atmosphere is now infested with nanoplastics and microplastics, what are the consequences there not only for planetary health, for all the organisms that breathe that air, but, you know, for the atmospheric health as well?
2: We separate our waste here for recycling and put the plastics in a separate little container, and they dutifully collect it. And I know darn well that none of it is being recycled. It's just going to the landfill anyway anyway. So what are the wishful thinking solutions that are coming out that actually aren't working?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, this goes back to the early days of, of recycling, right, which was the, the plastics industry saying, okay, we have this solution, um, and it's your fault as consumers that all this plastic is escaping the environment, uh, you need to recycle more. Just like do better as consumers. When all along, they knew that that was, that was crap. That, they're just, we are recycling vanishingly little plastic. So a recent calculation said that maybe 10% of plastics have ever been recycled. There was a, a recent, a more recent study in the United States that showed that we are recycling maybe 5% of plastics, which is absurd. And that shouldn't be the case. Us as consumers who have been doing great at this, like being dutiful and, and throwing these things into the recycling bin when we're done with them, uh, so much of it has been going to landfill. Or, even more destructively, developed nations have been shipping the plastic that they can't recycle profitably to developing nations, where the stuff is often burned uh, with tremendous Detrimental impacts on human health in the area, um, but also injecting these clouds of microplastics into the atmosphere. So, recycling, I think going forward, we're going to need bigger programs that are funded not by taxpayers, but by the plastics industry. We need to charge them huge amounts of of money as as taxes to fund these programs that actually do recycle um, as much plastic as we possibly can. The trick is that. Plastics have just become extremely complicated products. Uh, you know, A pouch of, of baby food is this multi-layered plastic that is extremely difficult to recycle, which is why we've been shipping so much of it to developing nations for them to deal with. So at the end of the day, recycling is not going to be the answer in and of itself. We just need to stop using so much plastic. At the end of the day, that's the only overarching solution to this crisis is that single use plastic as a concept is absolutely insane, and we need to stop with it. That is the only big systemic solution here that is really going to turn down the tap of both macroplastics, like bottles and bags, and and microplastics flowing into the environment. Just stop it already. And we can't fall back on these other ideas from the plastics industry, like bioplastics, which are plastics made out of carbon from plants, uh, you need a lot of land and water to grow those plants. It's plastic by another name. It's plastic all the same that breaks into microplastics and nanoplastics. Um, so we have to be very careful about the plastics industry bamboozling us again with, with recycling. Um, the burden should be on them for this catastrophe, not on us as consumers.
2: Uh, we may have to put some sort of cap on plastic production. Just how many factors you can have, and and how much can be made out of it. We need some sort of limits, I guess, to save the world from our plastic.
0: Yeah, there's, there's a in uh, a treaty in the works right now for potentially capping plastic production. Um, but just watch for the plastics industry to try to kneecap that. <laughs> I mean, this is this is their revenue going forward. That's that's the daunting thing is that. As the world shifts away from fossil fuels as fuels, the plastics industry wants us to use fossil fuels as plastic. That's where they see their revenue coming in the future because they see the writing on the wall with clean technologies. Um, Instead of, of course, you know, investing, you know, in those technologies, the the fossil fuel industry would rather switch to plastic. That's what we're up against. We're up against these very big, powerful corporations um, that are trying to break international commitments um, toward plastics production because that would cut into their bottom line. But at the end of the day, we as consumers need to elect politicians that take plastic pollution seriously. We need people that understand that climate change and plastic pollution are two sides of the same coin. A lot of the mitigation that we can put in place for either climate change or plastics, it's not just a one-off solution. We have a fundamental problem with fossil fuels. Plastics are just fossil fuels disguised as some other form. We can't let the industry keep bamboozling us. This is uh, an extreme emergency ecologically and for for human health. And we, we we just need to, as a people, come together. It's good to have individual action like recycling more or, or just like using less plastic as an individual, but we need these huge systemic changes to fight against these best
2: interests. Our guest is Wired Scientist writer Matt Simon, and his new book on microplastics is well written, and it's a huge worry. Look for A Poison Like No Other, How Microplastics Corrupted Our Planet and Our Bodies. Find links to this interview, the book, and more microplastic science in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. Matt, thank you for confronting some of the hard stuff here.
0: And thank you for having me.
2: I'm Alex Smith. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, EcoShock.org.
0: This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith.
2: Here comes the catastrophe scene. So says one of Australia's most experienced science journalists, Julian Cribb. Julian was science editor for the country's only national daily newspaper, The Australian. He wins awards and helps top agencies communicate science. Cribb is co-founder of the nonprofit Council for the Human Future. He is author of the book, Surviving the 21st Century, Humanity's Ten Great Challenges and How We Can Overcome Them. Julian Cribb, a warm welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex. All right, let's start with the obvious. What is the catastrophe scene?
1: Well, as everybody knows, we're probably we're in the Anthropocene now, uh, which is the age in which humans are making a geological impact on the Earth. We're changing the climate, we're changing the composition of the oceans, we're changing uh, the whole of the landmass and things like that. But that's going to be a very short-lived geological period, probably only a century or two. We are now entering an age when the catastrophes that have been building up in the background uh, are going to be triggered one by one. As we run out of water, we run out of topsoil, You know, we, we unleash all sorts of dangerous chemicals all over the planet, uh, which are changing the ability of the Earth to support human and other life.
2: Yes, and for years you toiled over, quote, the self-inflicted existential emergency faced by humanity. You wrote six books, published over 8,000 articles, and edited even more than that. But your conclusion is a bit hard to hear. It's hard to grasp, too. If we face a lot of very dangerous threats, why not just pick the top three and just concentrate on them?
1: Uh, Because you'll be taken out by all the others which you've ignored, basically. Um, But the point is you cannot separate them. They are all interconnected. Uh, Let me go back a little bit and explain to you how I came by this. I'm a science writer, a science journalist, and I've been reporting science for going on 45 years now. Basically, in speaking to the 10,000-odd scientists that I've spoken to, around about the 1990s, I started meeting more and more depressed scientists, scientists who were going out and gathering data. And the data that they were collecting was showing them that the world was going hell in a handcart. And, you know, they were bringing this back to the laboratory or the office and, and, and analysing it and finding it you know, really, really disturbing because other people were not aware of this, governments were not aware of this, they were not interested in it. They weren't taking any action on it. So these scientists were getting pretty alarmed and pretty depressed. Now, this is 25 years ago. I'm talking now. As a journalist, I thought, are they right to be depressed? I mean, are we really on uh, on a course set for disaster? So I thought, well, the easy way for a journalist to answer that question is to come talk to the best scientists in the world or read their, their writings, their publications in scientific literature, and that's what I did since about the uh, about 2008. I have been talking to top scientists and top institutions around the world and asking them what the data is showing. I'm not asking them for their opinions. I'm asking them for what their data is showing about the state of the world and the chances that humanity is going to survive. And it's a pretty grim picture. And it's not just about climate change. Climate gets all the headlines, all the focus. But there are nine other mega-threats that are just as bad in each in its way as climate change, all of them are capable of a catastrophic impact on the whole of humanity. Some of them are capable of wiping out humanity altogether. And we have to do something about it. But when you, when you scrape away all the detail and, and things like that and you ask yourself, what is causing all these threats? The, the simple answer is overpopulation. We've got far too many people using far too much stuff and releasing far too much contamination or pollution around the planet. So it's overpopulation, overconsumption, and overpollution. Those three things are the drivers of the 10 major threats.
2: Okay, so for our listeners, we should at least say what those 10 threats are, and I thought maybe we could begin with the first four. You've got eco-collapse, overheating, toxic poisons, and nuclear holocaust. Do you want to say a few words about each and why they fit into your top 10 list of threats to the human race?
1: Uh, yes, the first one is, is extinction, right? We've now got a rate of extinction that is running faster than the time when the dinosaurs got wiped out, believe it or not. Uh, that's what the science is saying at the moment. Some, between 1,000 and 10,000 times the normal background rate of extinction. So we're wiping out species like almost no other period in the Earth's history. This could be the worst or the second worst extinction uh, event in the whole of Earth's history. If we allow it to continue. Now, you know, people don't worry whether uh, an ant or a, a fly or something like that goes extinct. But the bottom line is that the ecosystem that supports us is what is being wiped out. Now, many people are aware that we're destroying honeybees worldwide, probably the, the chemicals that we've released are uh, off the honeybees. So, you know, if, if we lose honeybees, we lose about a third of the world's food. Because about a third of the world's food requires pollination by bees and other insects. So you know, if you wipe out the insects, you actually wipe out your own food supply. And that's an example of how if we destroy the environment that supports us, at the end of the day, we cannot survive ourselves. So there will be no food supplied to our gigantic cities. No city on Earth can feed itself, so they are all to be equally vulnerable uh, to this huge impact that we're having on extinction and ecocide, which is the destruction of the ecosystem. That, that was the first one. The second one you mentioned is climate. Well, we've got COP27 coming up. Basically, the world is going to meet again and shake its head about the, the state of the climate. Uh, we are on track now for two degrees of global warming. Now, two degrees doesn't sound very much, you know, two degrees also you know, on one day as opposed to another. That's not the issue. The issue is that when we put more energy into the atmosphere, the climate becomes much more choppy. It, it flips and flops from from drought to flood to drought to flood to storm. You know, all of these, these these changes happen much more quickly and they're much more energetic, and that means they're doing much more damage to things like the food supply and to transport and uh, things like that and, and you know people's houses. So the destruction, particularly of food, but also of, of human infrastructure, is going to increase as we get to two degrees. And at three degrees, you're getting to the stage where you probably cannot grow grain. You know, the, the world's grain supply will, will more or less vanish towards the end of the century if the, uh, the, the world keeps on heating at the current rates. So it's just a question of whether we keep on pumping carbon into the atmosphere and heating up the Earth to do that and, and stirring up this enormous engine, which is our climate, uh, or whether we back off. That's the second one. The third one is the poisoning of the world. Now, most people are unaware of this. But we are releasing over 200 billion tons of chemicals. And those chemicals, those 350,000 man-made chemicals, that we're also releasing a lot of chemicals when we, when we mine things and when we farm and, and, and when we uh, manufacture things, you know, we throw out huge amounts of pollution. So there's a phenomenal production of pollution going on at the moment. And this is poisoning not only ourselves, it's poisoning every human being on Earth as I speak, okay, there's not a single person who is immune to this. Every child is getting brain damaged um, as far back as their time in the womb at the moment because of all the industrial chemicals that we are in our environment now. Now, the World Health Organization says that there are 13.7 million people dying every single year due to chemicals in the human environment. Now, that is around about a quarter of all deaths on Earth. This is the biggest act of preventable homicide that has ever taken place in human history. I mean, it is double impact of World War II, if you will. But, but people don't acknowledge it. Our governments don't acknowledge it. Nothing so coherent has been done to stop it. So global poisoning is, a, is another major issue. Now, of course, uh, Vladimir Putin has, has reawakened the, the specter of nuclear war. Uh, Like nothing on Earth, we're we're probably about 10 seconds to midnight as we speak at the moment, because it's quite likely that something will go wrong, that nukes will get thrown around in Europe, and then it's out of control. You know, you just simply do not know where it is going to go once nuclear weapons start being used. Um, And people overreact, and they fire on on, on suspicion rather than, you know, on knowledge. You know, then the world can end up in a nuclear disaster. And, of course, a nuclear disaster, along with a climate disaster, are the two most likely ways by which humanity would become extinct. So that's the first four of these things. But they're all integrated in that they are all a result of our huge numbers, our population explosion, and our demands on the Earth system.
2: Yes, those are your next big three threats, the resource scarcity, uh, pandemics, which we haven't talked about, but I don't think we need to talk about. Everybody knows what's happening with that right now. I
1: don't think we do, actually.
2: No? What would you say about the pandemics?
1: Well, I would say that we've had seven pandemics since the year 2000, and, and we're still running an AIDS pandemic, which began back in the 1970s. So, you know, pandemics are going to increase rather than decrease. Pandemics are caused by human overpopulation by humans traveling too much, uh, by humans exchanging diseases in these very densely packed cities um, and, and this situation. So we're not understanding the causes of these things at the moment. So we, we might be focused on COVID, but COVID is probably a fairly mild kind of pandemic compared to what is coming down. We keep on knocking over rainforests, viruses which have to survive will come out of those rainforests and out of the animals that we're destroying and they will take refuge in humans and cause fresh pandemics. There have been 90 animal diseases transferred from wild animals to humans in in the last half century, okay, 90. Now, not all of them ended up as pandemics, not all of them even ended up as major diseases, but that's giving you some idea of the rate at which new diseases are entering the human species. And on top of that, we've got all these scientists doing very dangerous things in laboratories like pepping up, taking wild viruses and making them even more deadly. And, and that's just crazy science. It should not be allowed.
2: Your last three threats are famine, ultra-technologies and misinformation. What do you mean by ultra-technologies, Julian?
1: Well, artificial intelligence is, is an ultra-technology, nanotechnology. These are technologies which are super-powerful, basically. They can have absolutely massive effects on the human future, both positive and negative. At the moment, uh, people are pushing these technologies out there and there is no control over the negative effects. So, for example, uh, you know, artificial intelligence is leading us to a place where every single human being is surveillance for the whole of their life, from birth to death, and I don't think that's a very desirable thing from the point of view of human freedom. But robot killers, you've got robotic nuclear weapons now. I mean, what, what could possibly go wrong with that? You've got nanotechnology where they're releasing tiny, tiny chemicals into the environment that can never be called back. And we do not know what their effect is on human health, but we know from previous experience with chemistry that they kill an awful lot of people. But we're keeping on to pumping out these things. So that these are examples of new technologies that are completely uncontrolled by society. You know, they're being pushed out by universities and corporations. But society is having no say Um, There is no precaution being taken against a bad outcome from any of these technologies. Now, if I may use an example, coal was a very beneficial technology in the the 19th century when it was used to power industry. But through overuse and over-pollution, it has become a technology that is destroying our world. So that's an example of how benign technology can turn into a malignant technology just simply through overuse. So we, we want to avoid that. May I refer back to the, the previous uh, list that you, that you ran by. We, we mentioned briefly about resource scarcity. The world is running out of water. The world is, is running out of topsoil. Uh, we, we've lost half our topsoil, our, farmland, our farmlands, in, in, in the last 50 to 70 years. We can't go on growing food if we run out of water and soil. So we have to reinvent completely the, the way we produce food. So, resource scarcity, when we think about resources, we talk about things like coal or or something like that. But in actual fact, water, forests, fish, soil, these are resources without which human life cannot exist. And if we keep on destroying them at this rate, then human life can't exist.
2: And your last big threat, misinformation, may be the one that actually does us in. I mean, once people's ears are closed to science or to mere facts, uh, it's Possible truth just can't get through, and we all go down because of that.
1: Well, that is the problem, that that we just love telling lies to ourselves. And unfortunately, um, there are large groups, such as the fossil fuels lobby, that have actually made a profession out of telling lies to people about about the the danger of fossil fuels. They're out there trying to confuse the political debate and, and the media debate so that nobody knows what's going on with climate change. Uh, they're just trying to extend the, the period of which they can make profits out of fossil fuels, but they're using these lie factories to penetrate at election time and things like that. All of our, you know, our democratic debate is being contaminated by these things. But what they're actually doing is disabling governments. They are making democracy fouling up the wheels of democracy so it doesn't work any longer. Uh, and this applies in autocracies as well. You know, you can contaminate an autocracy with false information, and frequently they are contaminated with false information. Um, you know, Russia might be an example of that. Basically, um, false information means that you, you don't know what to do. Society becomes paralyzed. It's unable to act on the threats. So the misinformation deluge, this avalanche of lies and falsehoods and half-truths and fake news that is coming forth at the moment for people's own personal political, or political advantage is actually destroying our ability as a society to govern ourselves, to make sound, sensible decisions about the future. So yes, uh, misinformation could be the thing that actually does us in. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. No sign-up, just the latest info, free for all, ecoshock.org.
2: You are tuned to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex. My guest is Australian author and science journalist Julian Cribb. Julian, last spring you warned humanity could be, quote, sinking into a stagnant ocean. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, this is a, an area um, that has gone really under the radar. People, people haven't noticed. But if you, if you wind the clock back about two or 300 million years, there was an event called the, the Great Dying or the Great Death in the Permian when 96% of the Earth's species just went extinct. Uh, It was a a period of terrible pollution, and it turns out that that was started, really, by nutrients flushing into the sea and causing vast blooms of of algae. And as the planet warmed, the ocean currents failed, and and so the ocean stopped circulating, and the, the top level of the water remained rich in oxygen, but the bottom levels became anoxic, All life living in those layers of water just simply died. It could not survive, as indeed is happening in, in many places in the dead zones, the 760 dead zones that are occurring around the world at the moment. So as we flush nutrients into the water, they go on to become the fossil fuels of the future. They sink to the bottom. They produce these enormous blooms of microorganisms, which bloom and then die and form great patches of sludge on the seabed, uh, and those are the, the, the fossil fuels of the future, which we are actually liber- we're liberating the fossil fuels of the past and, and burning them and, and heating the world. But this heating effect is, is going to cause the breakdown of the ocean currents and the stratification of the oceans. It's a complicated argument that we could actually unleash. If we take it far enough, humans could so contaminate the world that nothing on it but bacteria can survive, which is... That was the case for the first two billion years of, of life on earth. For the first two billion years only bacteria could survive and then about 700 million years ago um, you know, multi-celled organisms came into into being. So you know, if, we, if we really screw the place up badly it can go back to that cradle earth situation where only only bugs can make it.
2: And then this past summer, you wrote the 10 catastrophic risks we just talked about can only be solved if women assume leadership everywhere in business, in politics and religion. And if that's true, and I don't disagree, it sounds like we are really doomed because all of those fields, religions especially, they specialize in protecting and projecting male power. Do you really hope that can be changed?
1: Women have have really got, uh, you know, the wind under their tail at the moment. They're they're reaching out, they're rising into positions of power and prominence like nobody would ever have expected, even in some very unlikely parts of the world. But uh, it's a huge, it's a huge obstacle that they have to overcome. You know, male patriarchy and, and male power have been the dominant paradigm of most societies through most of history. But, but let me explain why I say that women need to be the leaders of the future. First of all, if you, if you study history, there are almost no examples of women starting wars. Almost all wars are started by men, whether it's male governments, male monarchies, you know, male dictatorships, male war leaders or tribal leaders, whatever. Nearly always wars begin with, with men wanting to be um, the the masculine warrior types that they believe themselves to be. Now, all right, you know, in in, in medieval times or or in Stone Age times, you needed men to fight. It was a a necessary thing. But nowadays, when human survival is right on on the boundary, uh, you don't need those, those kind of skills. We don't need mass killers in charge of the world any longer. You know, we need peacemakers in charge of the world. We need nurturers in charge of the world. We need people who think about the grandchildren in charge of the world. And, and those are women. And when I looked at who was doing the damage to the world, you know, I started off with chemistry. And I looked at all the boards of the big chemical companies and, and uh, looked at the composition of the chemistry departments in universities and things like that. Now, it's 90% male-dominated. Right, so chemistry is a result of male groupthink. Modern chemistry is the result of men solving the problems in this kind of crazy, let's just fix it, you know, and and the devil take the consequences uh, attitude that that men have. You can apply that to forestry. Uh, All of these industries are dominated by men. The the cut down, the mining industry is dominated by men. Agriculture is dominated by men. Men have a very destructive mentality.
2: My problem with your work is how the public, how the rest of us can imagine these ten threats all at once. We, we don't do well with multiple things like that. Do, do you have a name for this beast, for this matrix or complex?
1: Yeah, well basically what, what we're, we're talking about human survival uh, and, and we are, at the Council for the Human Future, we're working on a thing called the Human Survival Index, which is a simple index that, that will tell us where humans are today closer to survival or closer to disaster than we were yesterday. So it, it, it actually measures all 10 of these factors using scientific metrics, um, but it combines them into a single number that tells you whether we are more at risk or less at risk as a result of our combined actions. Basically, we're, we're talking about survival of our civilization, first of all, because that's the first thing that's going to go down. Uh, and, and secondly, we're talking about survival of our species. That I think most people can understand. They may not understand the intricacies of climate change or chemical pollution or resource scarcity or something like that. It doesn't matter. What they need to know is that we are more in danger or we are less in danger. We are doing the right thing or we are doing the wrong thing.
2: You know, I was thinking of an image that would project it, and what came into my mind was actually the Hindu image of the deity Shiva, uh, known as the destroyer, And, and some statues of Shiva show him or her with ten arms, like the ten forces that we need to overcome, but of course, we can't culturally appropriate, a symbol that's divine to countless of millions of people. But I'm hoping eventually for some sort of picture, some way to immediately imprint that there are 10 things that we have to look after, even at once, or we don't survive.
1: Yeah, well, we've already got things like the Doomsday Clock and the Global Footprint Network. They already provide us with graphic images for resource scarcity or, or the nuclear threat. What we're going to do is come up with a similar graphic image that can appear on the news every night, um, that can appear in your, in your iPhone, in your Twitter feed, on your Facebook uh, feed, whatever, you know, and, and tell you where we're at. Let's face it, everybody in the world is going to be online before the end of this decade, right? So, so it will be possible to communicate with every human being on Earth um, by, before 2030 that's the rate at which the internet is spreading. So it's possible to get this information into people's hands so that they know that there is a need for action. Now, as to what the action is that you can take, well, I've got a new book coming out, if you don't mind me mentioning this, it's called How to Fix a Broken Planet. It's coming out in January of 2023, and it describes exactly what we have to do, what the scientists are saying we have to do to overcome all 10 of these threats. More particularly, it describes what each of us can do in our own lives if we want to mitigate those threats to ourselves and to our children and grandchildren.
2: I'm looking forward to that book. What was the title again?
1: How to Fix a Broken Planet.
2: To me, there are two favored responses by humans when we face a great danger. We can try to go back to a past where we know we survived, or we can try some sort of clean break, a revolution into new ways of life. Which does your book prefer, or which do you see as most likely?
1: My book takes the optimistic point of view, and it suggests that to avoid hopelessness, we need to take action. The antidote to hopelessness is action. Do something, you know, do something for yourself. Start growing your own vegetables. Stop travelling, you know, do something to clean up the world in some way. Minimise your chemical environment. Do all those kinds of things. If you ask me, I think that humans have got the brains and the technologies to solve all of these problems, but we do not have the institutions. We don't have the corporations. uh, We don't have the the governments who, who are able to solve these particular problems. So uh, that's the difficulty that we're in at the moment. We're paralyzed by our leadership and by our economic system. They obviously have to change. Now, personally, I doubt that they're going to change short of a disaster. And I noticed that the United Nations, in its Global Risks Report, which came out this year, is talking about civilizational collapse. That's the first time that anybody in authority has really dared breathe those words. They are warning that we are at risk of collapsing our entire civilization, not just our economy, but our entire civilization, all the infrastructure, all our schools, hospitals, travel, transport, monetary system, you name it. If that goes down, you know, we're in an awful lot of trouble. The question is, can we do enough to actually prevent that happening? Uh, And um, I'm I'm open-minded on that at the moment.
2: I get the feeling you're one of those minds who never really retires. You, you can't let it go or stop trying. Is that you?
1: I'm a grandfather, and, and uh, having learned what I've learned from the 10000 odd scientists that I've spoken to, I feel obligated to share that knowledge with the world in general uh, in order to help them to understand what is going on, to help them see what the scientists are seeing about the danger that we're in for the sake of those grandkids. That's what's been motivating. That's why I've written six books on this topic and backed them up with something like over 2,000 scientific citations to actually demonstrate to people that this has been thoroughly researched and it's been thoroughly checked. This information is, is, is not, you know, somebody's opinion. This information is stuff that's been checked and checked and rechecked uh, by, by thousands of scientists around the world. And it's, it's absolutely dinkum, as we say, in Australia. It's, it's for real.
2: From Canberra, Australia, we've been speaking with author, editor, and longtime science journalist Julian Cribb. You can find links to the stories we talked about, including articles and a video by Julian, in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Julian Cribb, thank you so much for spending time with us on Radio Ecoshock.
1: Thank you very much, Alex.
2: Thank you for listening.